The Veritas Radio Network is guaranteed the right to offend, annoy, agitate, shout heresy, and entertain. You should start programming right now. Kind of like the cultural sewage served up on Bravo or CMT, only it's on 24 hours a day. Except Sundays. When the truth gets you angry and you throw your smartphone, remember, no one is forcing you to listen to the truth on the Veritas Radio Network. You can't handle the truth! You're doing that of your own free will. That's what makes this country great and any gay marriage pointless. That's offensive! So there isn't much you can do about it, Chowderhead. I'm trying to think, but nothing happens. Grab a book, take a vow, and conform your mind to reality. Reality. Otherwise, you're just another Judas-inspired Karl Marx wannabe, and your children will steal your credit card number to buy tickets to the Miley Cyrus Twerkers Ball. I came in like a wrecking Are you ready? Let's get it on. On the Veritas Radio Network's Crusade. Welcome to the Philosophia Perennis live classroom and chat room here on the Crusade Channel, King Size Truth from Radio Size Speakers. It is Wednesday, 24 May 2017. We'll be covering De Homine, lecture number 13 tonight from Brother Francis Malouf of the St. Benedict Center. If you're interested in following our lecture series, Simply go to my website if you're listening to this in your car or at home uh, at MikeChurch.com. And on the front page, you'll see the scroll of the Dahomey Lecture Series. That's the home page at the top. If you click that, you will uh, uh, the, in the middle of that page, there is a window that, uh, that you can open up uh, to open up the live chat room. And you can log in using a um, username and password of your choosing. You do not have to be a member in order to use the uh, Philosophy Apprentice chat room. Please come on by and join us, and feel free to ask a question as you eavesdrop on our conversation. If you've missed any of the previous 12 episodes uh, and our discussions of Dohomene, then you can uh, listen to our, our, our classroom and chat room discussions on the same website at MikeChurch.com, uh, there is a podcast feed that updates uh, every Thursday when we upload the file, and you can subscribe to that. It's free, and all those files are cataloged right there for your convenience. 
and you can keep up with uh, with, with all, all that's going on in the classroom. Also, if you'd like to purchase Dahomey or any of the other great lecture series from Brother Francis Malouf, you can find all of them at Brother Andre Marie's website at Catholicism.org. Speaking of the aforementioned, Brother Andre Marie, he is here uh, live and with us from the St. Benedict Center or parts thereof in Rich- Richmond, New Hampshire. Now, I know it must really be spring up in uh, uh, New England up there, brother. So uh, how are you? Yeah, it's, uh, it's, uh, I can't do a New England accent. It's horrible. Uh, it is spring up here, and um, you know it's been in the 60s today, so it's actually kind of pleasant. And I was noting today as I was listening to lecture number 13 for the, for the second time that there is a, uh, there, there's a lot of discussion about um, the, first, uh, the first chapter of, of St. John's Gospel. And then Brother uh, went on to, into the Old Testament to tell the story of, I believe, of Jacob and of, uh, of Isaac, I think. Uh, and I was enjoying listening to it. I just I didn't start it early enough, so I didn't get a chance to finish it. I have listened to it before. It was about two months ago. But uh, I only made it to, to the 40-minute mark tonight, so I'm about 10 minutes shy of completing uh, Dahomey 13. Uh, what can you tell us that we'll be discussing tonight? Well, I thought that what we would discuss tonight, because, okay, so what Brother Francis did is is he concluded the study that he was doing in Dehomenae, uh, and he broke these classes up into trimesters, and he started a new trimester, and he sort of gradually eased into um, more of the Summa, and he sort of hopscotched around the Summa a bit. Uh, later on, we're going to get back into things that are directly relevant to Dehomenae, because I think it's next week he gets into... Um, man's purpose. He talks about what St. Thomas says in the Summa about the purpose of man. But what he spent uh, his time on this week, this lecture 13 on from the Summa, was the four senses of Holy Scripture. So I thought that because um, that's what he was talking about from St. Thomas, that we that I would spend uh, I would spend my time tonight talking about that the four senses of Holy Scripture. Sounds like a plan, brother. Sounds like a plan. Good. So so um, why don't I? I tell you what. I'm going to throw up in the um, I'm going to throw up in the chat room a couple of links. Uh, the first is going to be a link to the Dropbox that I, I kind of routinely put up there. And, um, oops, I hit uh, Control-V when I should have hit Control-C. I hate when I do that. All right, so um, I hemmed when I should have hawed. The three most recent <laughs> things I put up in the Dropbox are what we're covering tonight. Okay. And I'm going to put up also two articles uh, that people can read later on the four senses of Holy Scripture, and you know um, there there was a, there was a reconquest show on this subject too, and my guest my guest was your favorite sister Mike. Uh, <laughs> well, let me tell Mike. you my, my my other favorite guest is Doug Bershaw of uh, Loretto uh, Loretto Books. I listened to episode number seventy of uh, Reconquest as I was tooling, tooling across northern. Northern Virginia, heading to the, uh, well, not the closest one, but the most uh, interesting 
traditional Latin mass I could find Sunday in Leesburg, Virginia, of all places, at a little little chapel built in 1871 called St. John the Apostle. What a coincidence. Your brother was just talking about St. John the Apostle. (laughs) So I listened to uh, to, uh, uh, episode 70 about revolution, and I was so intrigued by it that I'll, if, I, if I didn't know that you were in prayer or in Mass on Sunday and I knew you had an iPhone, I would have called you and said, told you to put me in touch with Mr. Bershaw because I wanted to book him immediately as a guest on the Mike Church Show. That, that's how, uh-huh. that's how well, good he, episode actually, 70 he would, is. He'd probably be happy to do that. He's a fantastic conversation. He is. He, he really is. Uh, folks, get, get Reconquest episode 70. You're, you'll uh, you'll seriously, seriously benefit from it. Okay. Okay. Uh, Back to the discussion then. So we are going to uh, uh, start tonight with the, uh, you said three things? We're going to talk about the four senses of Holy Scripture. Okay, four senses, right. This is a a very important study for St. Thomas. It was uh, was very important uh, in as much as it reconciled two different trends that come to us from the early church and how to approach Holy Scripture, and when you when okay, so they, I, I'll try not to weigh weigh us down too much with with details, but you had two different schools in the East, which had a great prominence uh, in 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 among the, the those who were Christians who were learned. And those two different schools were the School of Alexandria and the School of Antioch. Now, the Catechetical School of Alexandria boasts that it goes all the way back to St. Mark, who was the apostle that went to Alexandria in Egypt. Um, it was certainly founded by the time Origen comes along in the 3rd century. Okay. And Origen was one of the Greek fathers of the Church, and he was, the, he was in a sense, the, the director, the head of the Catechetical School at Alexandria. And this was a very, very, very learned and very um, uh, academically progressive, (laughs) uh, that term has all sorts of bad meanings, but a very progressive uh, center of learning in the sense that they took all the best of pagan learning and Christian learning and tried to to join them in a way that benefited uh, the, the faith and didn't derogate from reason either. So uh, as a result, there, there, it was heavy on Platonism because that was a kind of the, the philosophy du jour. Origen, of course, was a big Platonist. So that's the Catechetical School of Alexandria in Egypt, and then there's the catech- there's the School of Antioch, okay. and this is this would be in modern day Syria, and uh, both Egypt, both Alexandria and Antioch gave us great saints. Both of them also gave, gave us great, not only heretics, but heresiarchs, you know, founders of heresies. And even, uh, so, so they had two very different approaches to, to lots of different things, but including the study of Holy Scripture. So germane to what we're talking about tonight, the catechetical school of Alexandria tended to emphasize what we would call the spiritual or mystical meanings of Holy Scripture. Okay. The, cat, the school of Antioch tended to emphasize the literal meaning of Holy Scripture. And what we're going to find is that there's a complementarity to these things, not necessarily an opposition. Now, those two schools tended to be opposed to one another in a variety of ways, and uh, even their saints could argue with one another. Okay, so, uh, the, the, and, and in fact, a lot of the history of the church in the, early, in the first millennium is uh, explained 
by the the rivalry that existed between these two different Christian schools, because the differences that they had with one another uh, made for some rather uh, robust argument and um, and controversy in the early church. But on this question, St. Thomas, in a sense, perfectly synthesizes the best of what those two schools have to offer. So remember, Antioch emphasized the literal meaning of Holy Scripture. Now, Brother Francis was Lebanese, and of course, but of course he called himself a Syrian, not, not a Syrian. He called himself a, pause, Syrian, because he considered that he belonged to greater Syria. And, of course, Antioch is in Syria. So once I asked him, which which of the two schools was right? And he says, well, of course, Antioch. <laughs> and he had a little smile on his face <laughs> because he was being sort of a Syrian nationalist when he said that. But, um, but of course, he also gave great value to the Antiochian contribution in, in this in this equation. So, so what the what the what the two schools give us in combination is that we can approach the study of Holy Scripture, Old and New Testaments, uh, with uh, by approaching it according to four different senses. In other words, a pas- a passage of Holy Scripture might be approached from the point of view of its literalness, its literally its literal sense, or a a spiritual sense, which we might also call a mystical sense. And the spiritual sense is further divided into three distinct senses. And those three senses would be the allegorical sense, the tropological sense, and the anagogical sense. And those are the three that um, together comprise the spiritual sense. So the literal sense is the most uh, clear to to grasp what exactly it it, it means. Um, The literal sense, for instance, of the book of Genesis is that what Moses related when he wrote the book of Genesis is history. It's true. It happened. Okay. It's literally true. What now? Uh, what uh, so that goes for Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, the, the the four books comprising the Torah or the Pentateuch, and everything after it that we would call historical books as well, like Joshua, Judges, and Ruth, uh, the books of Kings, etc., all the way up to one and two Maccabees. All of those historical books of the Old Testament narrate to us history. So where they say, you know. This man, this man was king of Judah in those days, or this man was a prophet in Israel in those days, or you know Elias did this, or uh, Ezekiah did that. When we when we read these things, this is a literal truth. This is something that's narrated to us as history. So sometimes the literal sense is referred to as the historical sense. All right, so that's pretty easy to grasp. I guess the only um, difficulty in in the literal sense is when we come to the parables of our Lord. And the parables of our Lord are are literally true in the sense that our Lord actually narrated them. (laughs) He he narrated them according to a certain genre, and that genre was uh, the, the parabolic. You know, he was simply telling a story in order to convey a moral lesson, which was something of, of a rabbinical technique, a didactic or pedagogic technique that was used in, in, by, the, by the rabbis. It was not, as a technique, it was not completely unique or original to our Lord. 
Um, so the, uh, the, the, the parables, by the way, there is at least one parable which, which some commentators think may have literally been true. And I think it was the parable of the, uh, of, of the Good Samaritan. It, it's, uh, it was something that, that may well have been an episode that was known to our Lord's hearers. Um, so, but it need not be, in order to be a parable, it need not actually be a, uh, a, a true event that's being narrated. The fact that it's being told as a story by our Lord is sufficient to fulfill the literal sense. But in every other respect, that's the only sort of wrinkle is when we're talking about the, um, the, uh, the parables. In every other sense, when, when, when Scripture is narrating events, saying this happened, that happened, the other thing happened, there we're talking about the literal sense. Now, when we come to the spiritual senses, it's divided into three. And it's divided into three as it relates to whether it, it pertains to something of a present event. Uh, or Excuse me, it's divided into three as, as to whether it, it pertains to um, something that's a past reality standing for a greater reality of the New Testament. And that's the an, uh, uh, allegorical sense. Okay. Or whether it's something that's meant to be applied to us in our daily lives. And that's the tropological sense. And then thirdly, whether it's something that, that applies to the future life of glory in heaven. And that's what's called the anagogical sense. So uh, those deserve to be gone back at, right? So when we talk about the um, allegorical sense, uh, St. Paul himself talks about many of the Old Testament events as if they are allegories for uh, present tense events uh, in, in, his, in his own day. And he says these things were given by an allegory. He says that um, at least once in his, in his uh, corpus of epistles. And they are applied, they are said by way of an allegory, and they apply to us. So St. Paul gives an allegorical interpretation to um, the, uh, we can talk about, uh, let's see, the, the, uh, the, the crossing of the Red Sea. That, St. Paul actually doesn't give that one. Let me think of the one that St. Paul gives. Oh, the, um, the, the sojourn in the desert. St. Paul talks about the sojourn in the desert, and he says these things are given by way of an allegory for us. So we look at the, at the um, Israelites in the desert during those 40 years, and we can see the events of their lives as an allegory for ourselves. That this, makes and sense. And this is what St. Paul explicitly says. This is written for us as an allegory. So there were characters in the Old Testament that were typical of characters in the New Testament. For instance, you had the 12 tribes of Israel. And then our Lord, when he came to choose the apostles, how many did he choose? Twelve. Um, so we have this sacrosanct number of twelve that was used by God in having the tribes of Israel and also by our Lord in having his twelve apostles. Uh, so the twelve, the twelve sons of, of Jacob become something of an allegory for the twelve apostles of our Lord. Now that that doesn't, and here's where here's where we need to see that there's a complementarity here and not a contradiction. 
There are people who are big time into the allegorical interpretation, especially of the Old Testament, and who will say, well, yeah, that was just written as an allegory. Well, it was written as an allegory, but it wasn't just written as an allegory. In other words, that's not the whole extent of its reality. Uh, the 12 sons of Jacob were real men. There were 12 real men, and we know their names. They're related to us uh, in the book of Genesis. So the, the, what St. Thomas tells us about the, this relationship between the literal sense and the spiritual senses is that everything is built upon the literal sense. You can't deny the literal sense of Scripture, where it's clearly speaking literally, as in narrating an historical fact. You can't deny that and say, this is simply an allegory. So when St. Thomas talks about the six days of creation, he holds them out to be, well, oddly enough, six days, rather than something else. <laughs> rather, than, rather than allegories of some, you know, in, uh, indefinite sort of six-like uh, duration of time. No, he holds them literally to be six days. How about the three days of darkness? Uh, yeah, well, I mean, that, that's, that, well, that's given by some mystics. It's not clearly taught in Holy Scripture. But, oh, I know that. But I know that. When we, where, where we, I mean, when, when, we're, when we're taught about uh, Moses going up to Mount, uh, to Mount Sinai to receive the law, you know, this is a literal event. This literally happened. When we talk about Abraham uh, taking his son Isaac up to the Mount of Sacrifice, to offer up his son. Now there, the allegorical sense is pretty clear, and the fathers of the church tended to seize upon this. They said, well, you, well, yeah, I mean, here's Abraham, whose very name means father, good father, or father of a multitude. Actually, Avram, Abraham, meant, or Abram, rather, his original name meant good father. Avrahim, Abraham, means father of a multitude, and God changed his name for a purpose. Um, he was both a good father and the father of the multitude, and as much as he's the father of all of the true believers. So Abraham, this good father, the, what kind of the ultimate patriarchal figure of the Old Testament, which has many patriarchal figures, but Abraham, the father of the faithful, takes his son up to a mountain to offer him up in sacrifice. That same son carries wood on his back, upon which he himself is to be sacrificed. Get it? Get it? I get it, it's, brother. I get it. It's clearly pointing to a future reality. It's clearly pointing to when the son, of, of the, the chosen son now, the son of promise, that's what Isaac was. So when the chosen son, the son of promise of the ultimate good father, the eternal father, uh, carries a, a wood on his back up a mountain, in order to be offered uh, for us, God didn't stop that. He allowed that. I was going to say, God, uh, God the Father went ahead and went through with that one. Yeah, he did. He did what he didn't allow Abraham to to do. So he accepted that sacrifice uh, and allowed it to actually tra transpire. So when you look back at that at that typology there, but by the way, the, the allegorical sense could also be called the t the typological sense, in as much as that the Old Testament typology for things in the New Testament are very much um, uh, allegories. 
So you can fill in you can fill in the blanks on so many of the of the instances. Uh, what you know, there's there's, there's sometimes the uh, the allegory is by way of a compare contrast, but usually we, we see point most clearly is the points of comparison that stand out. So this is the this is the allegorical sense, and and it and it doesn't necessarily have to be an Old Testament reality that stands for a New Testament reality, but that's most often um, what we see when we see the allegorical sense. So um, King David is a figure of our Lord in various ways. You know, he he is a king. Uh, Solomon is a figure of our Lord. Uh, you know, he's a, he's not only a king, but he's son of David, and that's the official title of the Messiah, the son of David, uh, Bar David, I think in Hebrew. Um, so he's he. Th- there are many different Old Testament types who were real men, historically real men, but who also stood as allegories for a future and greater reality. One of the most uh, stunning uh, comparisons, uh, allegories, and the uh, allegorical interpretations of the Old Testament is when you look at the, at the, what, what is applied to Joseph in the Old Testament. I think for many people, that's the favorite story of the Old Testament. Even NPR, National Public Radio, aka Radio Moscow, back when Moscow was still communist, uh, even NPR did a wonderful um, storytelling thing where this guy who had this really good voice for telling narrating stories told the story of Joseph of the Old Testament. And I, I think the reason is because people just love that story. It's right. a beautiful story. It's a very moving story. But the story of Joseph of the Old Testament, in many ways, now, in many ways, it parallels the life of our Lord. Absolutely. He's rejected by his own brethren. He's he's thought to be dead. He's sold by his own brethren. They, they at first wanted to kill him, then they decided to sell him. And then he ends up redeeming all of them. He ends up saving all of them. So he's very much a, an allegory for our Lord. But he's also an allegory for his own namesake, Saint Joseph, Saint Joseph. of the New Testament. And, and one way in which he does that is that Joseph of the Old Testament was a great provider, right? He provided for everyone in, in, in Egypt and beyond during the years of the famine that struck after he had prophesied the, 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 the seven years of plenty and then the seven years of famine. But that very way in which Joseph got his revelations was by what? It was by dreams, right? He got dreams himself, and he was also given the gift to interpret dreams. Well, at certain key events in the life of St. Joseph, when, you know, human prudence would not have sufficed, St. Joseph was told in a dream by an angel what to do, right? So many of the things that are said concerning St. Joseph, the, the Joseph of the Old Testament, apply in a spiritual sense, in an allegorical sense, to St. Joseph in the New Testament. This is and, the philosophy... Uh, uh, yeah, the Church applies this, a lot of what's said about Joseph of the Old Testament to St. Joseph. This is the Philosophia Potentis live classroom and chat room here on the Crusade Channel, King Size Truth from Radio Size Speakers. May is membership month, and many of you are responding positively to our membership campaign. And uh, you may wonder why there is just a Listen Live Now button on the app, and that's because... We are basically running the entire uh, channel in preview mode for anyone that cares to sample it. 
uh, until more Memorial Day weekend. So please download the app. It is free. Don't cost nothing. At the Google Play Store and the iTunes Store uh, today, search for Veritas Talk Radio Network app. Uh, many changes going on on the website as well. There will be a uh, uh, not too sub- not too subtle change that will be coming your way. It will probably be launched uh, this weekend. Don't panic. Uh, everything will, will will work and function fine. It'll just look a lot better and be a lot more organized. And uh, there will be an app update that's coming along with that as well. Having said uh, all of that, uh, there is a brand new episode of Brother Andre Marie's Reconquest tonight. Now, I was out for the last week, so I know there was an episode. So is this 78 or 79? uh, 77 tonight. Oh, come on. (laughs) 77. Boy, my county. Uh, Episode number 77. Now, what is on episode number 77? Are you lonesome or are you uh, Uh, with a guest? (laughs) Yeah, to quote quote Elvis, I'm lonesome tonight. Um, (laughs) It's... it's, uh, Medjugorje, true or false? That's false. So we're talking, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's it. Yeah, may as well not listen to it now because <laughs> that's the answer. But yeah, it's a, so. It's about the supposed Marian apparition at Medjugorje in uh, Bosnia Herzegovina, former Yugoslavia. So there's a lot. There's a lot to it. But there we go. There's a new book and I out that a link to it in the in the uh, chat room. There's a new book out that I think you and uh, Sister Maria uh, Philomena and Rosaria and Sister um, uh, Mary Peter and all the rest of you uh, may be interested in, and that is Carrie, uh, Dr. Carrie Gress's The Marion Option, which officially came out today, brother. Just thought I mentioned. Yeah, that. I'm interested in it. I heard you interview her a couple of times. Yeah, she's a uh, she's a colorful, very interesting uh, author and. Uh, from what I have read of the reviews that I've seen uh, of the book, um, it is far superior to the wishy-washy Benedict option uh, from Rod Dreher. So uh, the book actually came out today. We have them in our in our store at MikeChurch.com. And uh, I got to tell you, Dr. Uh, Dr. Gress uh, contacted me this afternoon. She was so excited because she hadn't even seen her own book yet. We had, <laughs> well, we had boxes of them sent to her because she's going to sign them for our listeners uh, as an act of kindness and charity. And uh, give us a little advantage over Amazon. And so she actually got the first glimpse, glimpse of her book today and was, was thrilled to actually hold it in her hand. So uh, rest assured, your copies are on route to us here and the Founders Trading Post. And uh, I can't wait to get mine. So that's all the Marion news that's uh, fit to print. And, brother, we also announced the other day, and I haven't done enough uh, promotion of this, that we begin Crusade Channel News on Tuesday June the 6th with Celeste Youngblood at the Crusade Channel News Desk. And uh, you can send your news items today. If you're a newsie, uh, we'd like to know what kind of news it is that you're snooping around in every day. Send your items, tips if you will, to news at veritasradionetwork.com. And uh, uh, again, Tuesday, June the 6th, Crusade Channel News Bureau officially opens. All right, back to Dahomey, episode number thirteen. All right, so so uh, when last we left off, we were talking about the um, allegorical sense, and I think we uh, we we uh, at least outlined it sufficiently for now. Uh, the next sense is the tropological. Now that's a fancy schmancy word which comes from the Greek verb tropane, which means to turn. 
So why does a sense of Holy Scripture come from the Greek verb verb for to turn? Mm. The reason is because what we're doing with the, the scriptural passage in this instance is taking it and turning it back on ourselves. As it were, we're using it as a, as a mirror by which we view ourselves. And um, the, the many of the fathers, the desert fathers and so forth, would interpret Scripture. They would consider Scripture like a mirror. You look in it to look at yourself and to measure yourself up to it. And that's what we mean when we talk about the tropological sense. Some people call it the moral sense. But Brother Francis thought that although that's part of the meaning of tropological, it did not sufficiently exhaust the meaning of tropological, so he preferred the tropological sense. So when, when you read a passage in Holy Scripture, Old or New Testaments, and you say, the moral of the story is, <coughs> I have to do this or avoid that, that's the tropological sense. And it's not necessarily the moral of the story is, it might be, how does this how does this story have some application in my life whether it's whether it's about um, do, doing whether it's about avoiding sin or not what is this application in my own life and scripture definitely does have that meaning to us you know sometimes we sometimes in the in the in the polemic that we Catholics have with with Protestants over the interpretation of scripture, um, certain things uh, end up kind of suffering a bit. You know, many, many of the Protestants will say, you know, the, the, whole, the scriptures are love letters from, from, from your creator to us, from Jesus to us, and we should consider it a personal communique from God to ourselves. Well, oftentimes this sort of just winds down into pure subjectivism and, and sort of the whole Protestant private judgment thing, and that's a problem. But when we take the tropological sense, which is really that, <laughs> the tropological sense is looking at the scriptures as something that God wrote for you to apply in your life. If we take it as one of the four senses and we don't reject the literal sense and we don't reject the allegorical sense and we don't reject the uh, uh, anagogical sense and we don't say that it's the magisterium that has authority to teach us what Holy Scripture means and so on and so forth— as long as we keep it in, a, in a, the larger context of, of supernatural revelation, the deposit of faith, and the authority of the church to teach, the, 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 um, the tropological sense has an awful lot to tell us. The tropological sense is what, what, what made some of the great saints, uh, some of the desert fathers read, read one passage of scripture, and it was sufficient to, to lead them to a life of conversion. St. Anthony the Abbot was famous for reading the part that said, he picked up the Gospels, he says, okay, I want to know what I need to do with my life. And he read a random passage and it said, uh, it's where our Lord said, uh, go sell all of your possessions, give to the poor and come follow me. So he said, okay. <laughs> so I can do that. He took, he took all of his possessions, he sold them, he gave his money to the poor. I mean, took it literally, but he, he applied it to himself. I go. I am gone to the desert. Yeah, and that's, that's what the man did. And uh, there were other saints, not just in the early uh, uh, years of the Desert Fathers, but there have been other saints since. And the, and the church frequently in her liturgy takes the, the these lessons from the Old Testament and New Testament alike and applies them to us and says, okay, here here is what you're supposed to get out of this story. You know, don't just say, oh, tisk tisk. 
those silly Israelites in the desert, they shouldn't have done that idolatry. Well, I mean, it's true they shouldn't have. And it's by the way, it's true that they actually did it. So the literal sense is there. But the the uh, and the allegorical sense is there because now we, we we see the greater realities being fulfilled in the New Testament. But what about the tropological sense? Well, don't do that. And what does St. Paul say when he says don't do that? He says, don't become an idolater like they did. And he talks about their idolatry. He talks about the fact that they engaged in orgies, you know, which they did. He stated it very chastely, but they they glutted themselves. They got drunk. They had all of these um, illicit pleasures. And St. Paul says this stuff wasn't just written for them. It was written for us, upon whom the ends of the, the end of times have fallen. So St. Saint, Paul's talking about all, this, all of those of the would-be saints of the New Testament that we would uh, follow, take this sort of negative example of what the Hebrews did, rather the Israelites did, in the desert as, uh, as an example for ourselves. And that's what the tropological sense is. So we can look at the story of Jephthah, you know, the guy that killed his daughter, the, one of the judges that killed his daughter. And um, Craig might have his opinion about how, the proper interpretation of the story of Jephthah. But, uh, and, 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 and many people do. There are actually some disagreements within Catholic circles. But this is, a, this is one of the judges who made a vow to God that the first thing that he saw that was living, he would sacrifice to God when he got home. And the first thing he saw living was his daughter. So he offered her in sacrifice to God. Now, Jephthah was, was a very rough figure, as many of the judges were. Um, and because um, the, the period of the judges was one of the worst periods of the, of the history of the, of the chosen people in the Old Testament. But there's a lesson for us not to make a rash oath, right? So th- this is a, this is a uh, you know, he, he could have said the first, the first appropriate animal to be offered to God that I see, I will offer up to God. <laughs> but after the victory, he said, no, the first living thing I see, I'll offer up to God. And then instead of just saying, well, you know, I can't offer my daughter, that would be an abomination, he went ahead and did it. Well, brother, so, brother, can it be, uh, I've heard it said that the book of Judges, at the time of the book of Judges, is I guess we could kind of coin a phrase and call it peak good government. <laughs> I think that's a bad joke. <laughs> when you read the book of Judges and see the stuff that went on, it was horrible government. Well, why do, uh, why, why do certain people or some people say that, well, we can always go back to a system where they're like, like they had in the book of Judges before they got a king? Well, but that's because those people hate monarchy. That's why. Ah, got it. This argument has been addressed, and um, frankly, um, I was. It's funny because it's a coincidence because I, I wasn't planning on talking about judges tonight or or, or monarchy, but um, somebody slight mildly complained that in my show on monarchy with Charles Colomb, we didn't discuss this point. He said, "You know, there are a lot of people that think that the Book of Samuel, the first Book of Samuel, refutes." monarchy when God's disappointed because the people of the Old Testament wanted kings. Well, if you if you reread the passage, which is in 1 Samuel chapter 18, which is in the Dewey-Reims Bible, by the way, it's 1 Kings 18, because it's there's different nomenclature for those books. But when you look at the passage, it's really stunningly clear that what upsets God if God is actually at all upset, and it's not just the prophet Samuel, is that the pe- it's not that the people want a king, it's that the people don't want him to rule directly over them anymore. 
And and God tells Samuel, it's okay. They haven't rejected you. They've rejected me. Got it. And it wasn't monarchy that got God upset. What got God upset was the fact that they wanted to have kings like the other nations. Ah. That's what it says in the Old Testament. That's what it says in 1 Samuel. Not just that they wanted to have a king. They wanted to have a king like the other nations. In fact, they had no government before that. None at all. The judges weren't a, didn't constitute a normal government. God ruled the people directly through the judges. Some of the judges were, were good, like like Deborah. She was a good judge. Some, some of the judges were, were terribly wicked. And some of them were, were, were ver- like, like Jephthah. He was a really rough character. But um, but when you look at the history of the kings, they were I I think it's arguable that they were much better off under the kings. And further, I read an author today who made it very clear that all throughout the Old Testament, he speaks in the future tense of them having kings ruling over them. So it's really clear from the Old Testament that God intended kings to rule over his people. Interesting. Um, and it wasn't a bad thing. There's only one chapter of the Old Testament that you could hold up and say, this puts monarchy in a bad light, and that is that 18th chapter of Saint uh, of, of First Samuel, or First Kings in the in the Dewey Reams Bible. But it, but it, it understood in context, it's it, God's in, God's complaining that the people have rejected Himself. So, uh, and and you know, by the way, if people want to return to the to the period of the judges, you can't because it was a pure theocracy. Can't have that so, today. No, the closest thing you have to a pure theocracy is a, is a Christian monarchy. You can't, and, but but even that's not a pure theocracy. So uh, so the, the, there was no constitution under the period of the judges. Sure. So some of these people, in the name of democracy or republicanism, say, "Well, we got to go back to the what they had under the judges." Well, trust me, it was not the rule of law. It was not a written a written constitution. It was nothing like anything you would want governing over you. And uh, brother Alexis, uh, brother Alexis was on my show today. Brother Alexis Bognolo of the Ordo Militaris, and he said that during the ages of faith, when the Holy Kings were ruling Europe and uh, b- before the revolt, he said that uh, b- basically, um, if you were a libertarian, you probably w- would be pretty happy then. But he didn't mean it in the sense of today's libertarian, where everything that you wanted, everything that you wanted to do, you should be able to do, provided it doesn't harm anyone. Yeah. He said there were very few laws, almost none. There was a heavy local rule, mm-hmm. and the, the 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 this whatever there existed of a central government, and the government tended not to be centralized. That was a later development, but in the medieval monarchies, the monarchies were very decentralized. Um, an awful lot of local rule, and even a lot of the democracy as far as selecting local rulers. But it was a class stratified society. It was nothing like what we have today. But right, but right. but but as far as big government, it didn't exist. No, it did. The government couldn't couldn't stick its big fat nose into your business the way that it can do today. Not only did they not have the technology to do it, they weren't interested in doing it. They had their own lives to live. They were too, they didn't want to be pushing you around. And what is this life to live that uh, you live outside of government controlling it, brother? Where, where, where do you find that? <laughs> I might have oh, to go. I don't know. You know, maybe just like 
doing my duties of my state in life, you know. I, I might have to come join your order someday as a uh, <laughs> as a tertiary. <laughs> this is the this is the live of uh, philosophy of Penenis classroom and chat room, and uh, today is Wednesday, the twenty fourth of May, two thousand seventeen. If you're interested in obtaining the lecture series as an MP three or CD, simple to do. Go go to brother's site catholicism.org. And in the search box, uh, search for, I guess they would search for philosophy, or Brother Francis, and uh, if you could spell Dahomene, search for Dahomene, D-E space H-O-M-I-N-E, and uh, you'll find the, the lecture series there. If you tell Brother that you heard about it from the Crusade Channel, he'll offer you a, a discount code that you can use toward the purchase. You can also, and I strongly encourage anyone who's listening to do this, you can also purchase the Philosophia Perennis set which is uh, available at the same site, and that is eight series of lectures, beginning with minor logic and ending in oncology. And, of course, you can read Brother's uh, blog work every day of the week at Catholicism.org. He's hiding in plain sight on the Twitter, at the King Dude. I mean, I'm saying at brother, uh, brother underscore Andre, and on Facebook, Brother Andre Ma. Brother, uh, we are about uh, three quarters of the way through. We have uh, almost thirteen minutes uh, to, to to wrap this episode up and hopefully get to the to a close. So where okay. are we where are we going so, from here? So let let me just wrap up some stuff with the tropological sense, and then we'll move on to the anagogical sense. So um, let's take an example of the tropological sense in the Old Testament. Some of us are familiar with the story of um, King David and and the prophet Nathan. King David, uh, uh, his worst sin, right, right before he, right before he writes that that most beautiful of the penitential psalms, Psalm fifty or forty nine, depending upon the way you, no, Psalm fifty or fifty one, depending on the way you uh, number your Bible. Um, it's fifty in the Douay Bible, but uh, it's the miserere. It's the it's the most most uh, pathetic of all of the penitential psalms. Okay, and in that penitential psalm. King David is is mourning and and expressing penance and remorse for what, for what he did to Urias the Hittite, when he took this man's wife, Bathsheba, Bathsheba, sinned with her, committing adultery, and then when she was found with child and his uh, bizarre artifice of trying to get around being discovered for his adultery failed. He then committed the horrible crime of murder against Urias the Hittite and had him sent into the thick of the battle and ordered his other lieutenants to pull away and allow Urias to die. Now, Urias did die in the battle, and, and the irony, of course, is that the bitter irony is that Urias was so personally loyal to King David uh, all along the way that it's so particularly shameful that David would do this. So here he is, the king of Israel. God based him up, put him in this position. He had been a holy young man and a holy young king and all this. And then he commits this horrible sin of adultery and then murder. And Nathan the prophet has the job. The prophets in Israel didn't have pleasant jobs. They had to basically tell people, you're going to hell. It's not fun. And when you have especially a powerful person like a king and you have to say, you screwed up, you did wrong, fix it, or you're going to hell. That's that was the job that the prophets had, and most of them tended to die very unpleasant deaths as a result. <laughs> but Nathan was actually appreciated by King David, and Nathan goes to King David and he starts by telling him this story. 
And he tells him this story about this man that had flocks and flocks and flocks of sheep. And um, he, he uh, and then he had a neighbor who was a poor man who only had one sheep and he raised it as a pet and it, he treated it practically like it was his child. And um, the man that had the flocks and flocks and flocks of sheep had some friends coming over and he decided that he wanted to feed them lamb. So he goes to his neighbor and he takes his lamb and he kills it and he cooks it and he feeds it for his guests. And King David was so indignant when, when he heard this story from Nathan the prophet, he said, well, the man that did this is worthy of death. And Nathan looks at him and says, thou art the man. Wow. And then he goes on and he tells them, you know, you, you, you could have had any woman in Israel, but you took the wife of Urias the Hittite, and then you sent him into battle and had him killed. David instantly did penance. Instantly. This is to his credit. I mean, he did something horrible, but he instantly did penance. And um, the, 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 so there you have the tropological sense when Nathan tells the story, tells his little parable, and then he, he, he does King David the favor of interpreting it tropologically. Yeah, that wretched guy that you said is worthy of death, that's you. That now, is. the interesting thing is we can take this same story, this, we can take this same thing and take it as a, as a, in a tropological sense for ourselves. King David doing penance. He sinned greatly. He did penance greatly. In fact, we have a story in the early church about St. Ambrose when the, emperor, when the emperor Theodosius II, known as Theodosius the Great, okay. committed a horrible atrocity in the city of Thessalonica. The Thessalonians tore down a statue of the emperor, namely Theodosius II, the, the one in question here. Well, he didn't like that. And when his statue got torn down, he sent an army in and massacred the city. He, I mean, not everyone, but he was a large massacre. The next time Theodosius, who was a Christian, went to go to ma went to go to mass in in the in the in the cathedral of Milan, which mm. temporarily the capital was in Milan at that point. Okay. And when he went to go to mass in the cathedral of Milan. St. Ambrose stood at the entrance of the cathedral and he says, don't come in here, not after what you did. <laughs> you're a pen you, you're a, you have to do public penance now for what you did. And, and, he, and he said, you, you, you committed this atrocity, you sinned grievously, I cannot let you come in here and, and worship just like you're an ordinary Christian again. So, so, did, so did he? Uh, he, he, no, he didn't. He said he well, but but the funny thing is, Theodosius argued. He said, "Now this is the days of in the days of public penance, where the public penitents stood at the door of the of the church asking for the prayers of the people going in." I mean, this is when Christians were were were, were Christian. Right? I mean, <laughs> this is when we really lived it, you know. And um, Saint, so so there there's Theodosius arguing with St. Ambrose, and St. Ambrose was tough. Remember, he had been a senator. He was a, he was a tough guy. He was a Roman politician, and he didn't take anything from anybody. And when the emperor said, he, when the emperor argued, he said, well, King David sinned too. <laughs> and, and what did St. Ambrose, who knew the scriptures better than, than Theodosius, said, you sinned like David, now you must do penance like David. That is the tropological sense. So here we have sort of a double tropology here. We took the, uh, the story of Nathan and David, and then we took it and applied it to somebody else. And but good. the way that a great father of the church did it, namely St. Ambrose. So that's the tropological sense. Anytime you, you read the scriptures and you say, how do I apply this to myself? 
And it's you get a moral lesson there on how you ought to behave. That's the tropological. That's sense. tropological. Interesting. Um, yeah, and uh, just a footnote on St. Ambrose. St. Ambrose also was the confessor. He wasn't a converter, but he was the confessor and I guess the mentor in the early days of St. Augustine's conversion, right? Yeah. Well, St. St. Augustine used to go hear St. Ambrose preach even before he converted because this brilliant man, uh, he was such a great orator and he, he made the Christian faith sound so eloquent that this drew St. Saint, Saint Augustine. Yeah, so he, he, St. Augustine did not get to spend a lot of time with St. Ambrose, who was very busy at the time when, when St. Augustine was in Milan. But um, we've got five he was, minutes. He was to definitely a key figure in, in Saint Augustine's conversion. Five minutes to go on the old Crusade Channel Dahomey countdown clock, brother. Okay, so so the last is the anagogical sense, and the anagogical sense uh, is where we take a truth of, of either the Old Testament or the New Testament, and we apply it to something that is uh, we apply it to the future life. So. Um, th there are times, for instance, when we talk about, okay, th there is, there is a, a certain city that's very important in the Holy Land, the city of Jerusalem. That city can be looked at in all four senses. Mm -hmm. It's literally a city. It literally existed uh, in the times of um, King David was the one who, who conquered it when it was, uh, when, when it was um, occupied by the Jebusites. They finally took it over and moved in. It's a real city. It had great importance in the history of the Israelites. Then you can take it and apply it in a in a in a in a uh, an allegor an, an allegorical sense. It's constantly spoken of in an allegorical sense in the New Testament as the church. The church is considered the New Jerusalem. So that's an allegorical sense. Then we can take a tropological sense and we can say we are Jerusalem. So what was said about the inhabitants of Jerusalem, either good or bad can be applied to each one of us since we're part of the New Jerusalem. But then there's an anagogical sense, and what is that? Well, St. John, the beloved disciple, mm -hmm. and when he was writing the Apocalypse, describes this vision of the future of the church, and it's coming down from heaven adorned as a spouse to meet its bridegroom. And he calls that the New Jerusalem. So he's speaking of the church in its perfected state in heaven as this perfectly adorned bride, but it is also Jerusalem. Now, he's not talking about the literal city of Jerusalem, but he's talking about a greater reality, a heavenly reality that was foreshadowed by the, by the city of Jerusalem. And there are numerous other uh, uh, places, persons, things, and ideas that we can we can give an anagogical um, application to uh, concerning the future life. So I, I, I maybe I'm a little thick. Could you explain that one more time? So how is that anagogical? So it the, the anagogical sense uh, relates. Uh, Saint Thomas says, as they signify what relates to eternal glory. Oh, okay. So, right. so whatever, whatever, whatever pertains to to eternal glory, that applies to the anagogical sense. So, when we when we say in Scripture for Latari Sunday, when we say rather in the liturgy for Latari Sunday, rejoice, O Jerusalem, and come together, all you that love her, rejoice with joy, you that have been in sorrow. 
we're talking about, we're, we're quoting the book of Isaiah, mm-hmm. where Isaiah is literally encouraging the inhabitants of Jerusalem to rejoice, but the church is applying it to the, to the souls of, of the blessed in heaven. Interesting. Um, the, the, the house of the Lord, there's, there's a phrase that's constantly used in the Psalms in the Old Testament. It literally means the temple. It means in the New Testament, we use that term to talk about the church, but the ultimate house of the Lord is heaven. Message from Mike Church. Sorry. (laughs) How did that work, Mike? (laughs) I thought I'd waited longer to realize you had read to text. Uh, brother, we have exactly one minute to conclude uh, this episode of Dahomene, and it's been a very interesting one. So we have the four senses, or the uh, the, the four the four ways to consider Holy Scripture in Dahomene number thirteen. I bet when we started this, no one thought that we would get this kind of an education, but we are. Next week, we will be here, uh, and we'll do Dahomene episode number 14. You need to stay tuned, though, folks, because there is a brand new episode of Reconquest, episode number, I got it right, 77. 77 (laughs) tonight from Brother Andre Marie, coming up in just moments here on the Crusade Channel, King Size Truth from Radio Size Speakers. May God bless you, and of course, may Our Lady, Mother Mary, keep you. (laughs) 